none of us want to be told what to do. I don't care if we're kids or adults, but it, you fight back when someone says, this is what you have to do now. And it was like magic. He felt in control. All resistance stopped because he made the choice. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. I also lead a caregiver support group in my local community. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Speaking of best medicines, right? (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. (sighs) (laughs) You know, you've written two books on uh, caregiving. The first book was about your journey with my father. So what prompted you to write that book? What was your inspiration? What was your um, catalyst to, to launch into that? I think part of it I was it was something that I was supposed to do, having been a writer since I was eight years old. But then when I began hearing caregivers say, I wish somebody would write a book that tells what it's really like. And as you and I know, um, you know, it, it reads like a novel, but every word is true. And in it, we're I'm very honest about the things that we did that worked well and the things that we did that did not work well. <laughs> And I think it's not only a resource for caregivers, but also for their family members. Um, so they can see from another family's perspective um, exactly what it's like to go through this caregiving experience. And that brings us to today's guest. She was one of the millions of unpaid in-home family caregivers when she took care of her husband of over 50 years after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. During her caregiving years, she employed some techniques that led to some unanticipated positive results. She's the proud mother of two and grandmother of four. We are very pleased to welcome Ms. Helene Berger. Welcome, Helene. Hi, Helene. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for all the wonderful work that you do. Well, we appreciate that. And, you know, when I was reading your book, which is extensive with a great deal of information for caregivers, what stood out to me was some of the techniques that you use that many caregivers wouldn't think about to keep your husband engaged, um, to keep his mind sharp, um, and help him maintain relationships. We would love it if you would share some of that with our listeners. I'd be happy to. Uh, I will say that the first I was definitely not prepared. Nobody is unless you're in the caregiving business. And no matter how much you know uh, that you know that it's what, the, what is going on, it's always a shock when you hear those three fatal words, you have Alzheimer's. And my husband, when he heard those words, said he did not, I said, I do not want to live anymore. And the first year he went downhill and in all the typical Alzheimer's symptoms, anger, frustration, and what what everyone knows is Alzheimer's. And I saw this beautiful, kind gentleman going down, and I made it my life's mission after, this was after 50 years of marriage when he was diagnosed, and I made it my life's mission to give him every bit of kindness and gentleness that he deserved, and I was, I must say, I was very creative in ways 
of, of finding things to do. Some, some of the things that we found were new things that he'd never done in his life, like drawing. He was an engineer with a, a master's in engineering and business administration. And he drew very, drew very excellent floor plans, but never a picture in his life. And one night after dinner, I sat down at pad at, at, at the dinner table and crayons, colored crayons and pens and markers. And I said, draw something. And he looked at me like I had lost it. And he said, draw what? And my re immediate response was, whatever makes you happy. And he looked at me questioningly and he took up a pen and he started. And that was the first of almost a nightly routine of his drawing pictures. And they got, I can't say sophisticated, they don't belong in a museum, but what they do do is they reflect that this man who wanted to give up the first year was so full of joy, so full of happiness, every drawing, and I, I've included many of them and many other things in the book, uh, because they, it, for me to say he did well is one thing, for you to see it when you see the book in your own eyes, the absolute delight. E even the house he drew, the windows were the windows with smiley faces, and it it was a tremendously important thing to him. The cover of the book, which is choosing joy, there's a big O for joy in the middle, and that picture was of of a, a bright yellow sun, and usually he did. He was so proud. He dated and signed all of them but this one was one of the rare ones that he actually gave a title to and he called it happy son and it was a year before he passed away and so Helene, i have to i'm going to interrupt you for a minute because the story that you're you're telling about handing him you know a piece of paper and, and a pencil and you know asking him to draw something and him not under you know thinking what do you mean draw something that's not what i do it's very much like the story of myself as a very young girl when my best friend's mom told me, told the two of us on a rainy summer afternoon um, to sit down at the table and write something. And it was the first time I'd ever attempted to write a story. And here I am all these years later, still writing. And I tell people that she gave me a gift I didn't know I wanted. And that's what you did to Adi that day. You gave him a gift he didn't know he wanted. And it turned out to be a gift for you. And now so many other people, too. Thank you. Thank you. And But they weren't all things that were new. Some of the things uh, were, were, I tried to look at what interested him before. The drawing was unique. Uh, and he was he loved classical music and he played the piano beautifully. And he stopped. The, uh, the, the day he was diagnosed, he, he would not go to the piano. And one day I asked him, sweetheart, you, you had such joy at the piano. Why, why aren't you playing? He said, I can't. Uh, why? My fingers don't work. And I said, honey, give, would you do me a huge favor and give me 10 minutes a day and, and see if maybe your fingers come back? And he, that made sense. He said, okay. And from that day on, he was at the piano first 10 and 15 and then an hour every day, smiling, smiling away and just so happy to be back there. So in introducing things, some were new, some were old, old things, and some, it's important to say, I tried and didn't work. 
like he always considered himself, he always you know, he always considered himself a mathematician and uh, he used to call himself the numbers man and I thought oh perfect I'll I'll have him do sudoku and I tried it in the second year he was not ready for sudoku and he was so confused by these boxes and the numbers and where they go that I I stopped because it was just frustrating him. <laughs> two years later when he was doing so well and it, it, it so much was coming back to him I thought you know I'm going to try that again. And he took to it two years later, so beautifully, where his mind is, he's just, uh, his mind was active every day in his life. We can get to that every minute of his life, rather. Um, his days were so programmed with charts all over the wall. But, uh, uh, but let, let, again, let, something, let's, you know. let's stop that okay. for a minute um, because um, there, you're putting forth these, these um, ideas for people. Um, in quick succession, and sometimes I'd like it if you could go into it a, a little bit more. Now, I know sure. that Mike is very interested in music therapy, and um, AD went from saying that his fingers didn't work to be a, being able to play actual pieces. Is that correct? And not only play them beautifully, but they, he had a very huge repertoire of, of of Beethoven and Brahms and, and Mozart and, and, and Rachmaninoff. And uh, he knew them well, but he, he couldn't sit down and play without the music. And what fascinated me is that with the music, he, he was back. And, and every day he got better and stronger. And one of the other things about music, which is magic, uh, Mike, I, I, I so deeply agree with, with your field and what you study. One of the things that we did when we had a lot of car rides to doctors, unfortunately, we had a lot of physical things going on. And I try to make every car ride a time of using our time widely. And one of the things we did all the time in the car was sing and sing and sing. And he sang all his songs. I was just going to ask you if you sang. And, and the memory, what was it? There was that song, A Carousel, If I Loved You, If I Loved You. And he, all the verses came, they, the verses just poured out of him. And I, I did see that marvelous presentation, which I know mm -hmm. you're familiar with, about the, the guy who started introducing it to hospitals. Music was always magic for him. And we used it, we, it was such a wonderful thing. And by the way, even in the car, if we weren't singing, I kind of, I had him totally, just totally wrapped attention. He couldn't go anyplace. And, one of the things I did is I discussed and said the things to him that I wanted to say. And one of the things when he passed away six years after he was diagnosed is that I, there's nothing that I left unsaid to him. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. That's he, was wonderful. Such, he, he was such a beautiful, kind, gentle, loving, moral, amazing man. Well, it comes and, through, it comes through know, in your book that, that it's a love story. It's yes. a definite love story. And we can feel that and we can see that even now. Let me just say, the beginning, we, we have the same bumps that everybody has in, sure, in, in marriage in the beginning. We, we work them through because each of us knew the other one was worth it. That's right. Uh, you know, we, we share that kind of relationship. Mike and I have been together for 32 years, married 32 years together 37 37 years um and <laughs> um 
One of the things that you mentioned that you did that I think is really important to hear, for caregivers to hear from you is that you limited television time. So many people with dementia seem to disconnect and they spent hours every day sitting in front of the TV. And um, while that may engage them for a while, it doesn't engage their brains in the way the things that you're doing. His mind was kept active every minute of the day, except for his nap, except in the 40 minutes at, at night after dinner that he, that he was allowed to watch the TV. And even that in the beginning, uh, I, I programmed that very carefully. In the beginning, he was fascinated by uh, 24, this violence thing. And he sat, he sat with men who he would watch it. And that was good because it came, it stopped. It was only 50 minutes long without the commercials. And I realized that it was not good for him. And so I, I gave him choices of different movies, but they were Carousel, Oklahoma, oh, the musicals. old favorites and things that he can, that he could put musicals again, and sometimes uh, other, but most mostly musicals. And the big thing about that, which is much more major than we probably have time to go into, is, and, but it's a point that I really want to make. Uh, when you ask what I did, I learned, if I can tell a quick story, I learned from our housekeeper of then 18 years who adored him. I learned a lesson that was so deeply important. Came into the bedroom one morning, and if she had said with a bright, cheery voice, uh, Mr. Berger, your breakfast is ready, I would have thought, how great, how lovely that is. She didn't do that. I heard her one day come in and say instead, Mr. Berger, are you ready for breakfast? And my jaw dropped. The difference, the brilliance of not telling him what he had to do, but asking him. Because once he asks, it's his choice. He's in charge. And I tell you, there's almost nothing he had to do in life that I didn't put in the form of a question, including what movie would you like to watch tonight? This one or this one or this one? Even, do, do you think you want to go to the bathroom before we leave for the, for the appointment? And when none of us want to be told what to do, I don't care if we're kids or adults, but it, you fight back when someone says, this is what you have to do now. And it was like magic. If you ask the things that I did that worked, that was, I think, probably the, the most, the, one of the most important. He felt in control, all resistance stopped because he made the choice. Now, I have to ask, Helene, um, in your book, you talk about um, optimal ways to work with healthcare providers and safely manage long lists of medicines, right? And, um, and you've spoken on that issue. Now, I've spoken on that issue also from a little different tactic where I said, here's how you have a good doctor visit. Would you explain um, some of your techniques to work with the healthcare providers and how you safely manage medicines? My pleasure. I went to every doctor's appointment with lists, a copy for them and a copy for me. Of course, the medication and the basic things, a copy of, and, and if it was a new doctor and a copy of all the medical problems that he had. But more than that, I went in with a, a list of questions that I wanted to ask because we never remember when we're there. We'd leave the office and say, I should have asked this, I should have done that. And 
and uh, and one thing that uh, it only happened once, but it was such an important thing. It was a new doctor. The doctors who knew him loved him and and would speak wonderfully to him. I walked into one doctor. He turned to me and said, "So how is he doing?" And I didn't say a word, not one word. I just slightly nodded my head towards my husband, and he got it. And he nodded, and and in other words, I, I, if the doctor wasn't doing what I wanted, by that one little nod of the head, motioning towards my husband, um, and, and it's so important that if a doctor chooses to do that, you insist that he that you don't keep somebody that you love sitting there like he's a bump on a log and doesn't exist in the room. So that was that was one thing. I also had charts for uh, for every everything of the day and some, some of the doctors would say to me can I take your name off and the medications off and keep this chart for my patients so I coming in I, I did homework before I, I didn't right. just show up to the doctor's right. office I did homework and and all these things might all these charts it may sound rigid but they like of what we do when how much time what what time we what time he draws what time he plays the piano what time he naps it, for him it was not rigid because he Deeply appreciated the the security of knowing what he had to do when. Right. Absolutely. When something, it he, it was so important. I remember in early on, we had one very capable. And by the way, one of the things that, that about his life is he was kept in shape. He had, he had, we had, was able to have somebody a trainer come in five days a week, and he walked or he he he, would, he had a stationary bicycle his exercise was was vital and he he used to ride a bike before so it was things he loved and he was a swimmer but anyway this we had this lovely woman but she was working him in and she couldn't come in at the same time each day and i had to let her go because he needed the consistency of a plan and he was absolutely discombobulated when things were different each day and that, that gave him such a sense of peace and security. So it, it sounds rigid, but it, for him, it was very important. Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm stereotyping, but it's fairly true. I've dealt with hundreds, hundreds of engineers in my professional life before I retired. And a common phrase I've heard out of engineers is, what's the plan? And engineers <laughs> have to have a plan. And it's, it's yeah. funny that you say that, and you said that he was an engineer before. And so that didn't surprise me at all. But getting back to the, the communication and uh, with, with the medical professionals, some of the things that I tell people is you have to develop a conversation. You have to be able to communicate with the doctor and you have to build a relationship. Number two, make a list of concerns before you go into the doctor's office. And you obviously did that, yeah. right? Yeah. And Keep the list to one page. They don't have time to go through 29 pages and make it the most important things first. So if number 18 on the list doesn't get addressed, the top 19 did. So make, make a list, most important first. Have a copy for the doctor because their time is limited, right? They have another patient right behind. Key concerns at the onset. So the doctor doesn't jump to conclusions, rush to dismissing an issue before you're, you're able to bring it forward. Listen, 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 listen to the doctor. We have the same list. And, and ask questions. <laughs> we well, uh, this, is, this is for our, our listeners, right? 
Um, yeah, I know. I know. I was saying, but it's yeah. fascinating. But, and one, one of the other things is I, I needed to. I needed to develop a, for, the, for the important doctors, the, the lung doctor or the heart. I needed to develop a rapport right. with right. the doctors. Uh, and and that took work and time, but they they knew that I was absolutely responsible. They were impressed with the questions that they they were impressed with the way I handled my time with them. By by the way, my son was chief of cardiology at Pennsylvania Hospital for 18 years, so I kind of knew what doctors right. needed right. a little bit. And <laughs> and uh, I remember an incident when uh, he he had he had lung issues all his life, and. I remember an incident with and he, his um, pulmonologist knew knew him well, knew me well, and I'll never forget. It was before a weekend, and I called and said to the doctor, "I I don't like the way he sounds. Forgive me. There's no green gunk coming out yet, but I I I don't like the sound." And he said, "Helene, uh, I'm putting him on an antibiotic immediately." And two days later. It it, it 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 turned into the mildest pneumonia that he had, but he knew that I had my finger on his pulse, uh, and they they knew that I, I I didn't cry wolf when I when I saw it. I knew what I was talking about. Before we um, end this episode, um, please talk for a couple seconds about your book. Well, I I, I feel like I've I feel like I've covered two percent of it. Uh, let let me say first that the book is the book is extremely universal. Uh, my husband had Alzheimer's or, or and people have dementia, but I've heard from my readers over and over and over again, anyone who, who you're, you love who is failing, the techniques that I spelled out in this book in great detail, as I said, this is not even the tip of the iceberg. The techniques that I learned through trial and error, through diligence and just trying, you know, and, and common sense uh, apply to anyone. It's, it's so it's it's not just an Alzheimer's book. Um, one of the first things we have to do because we cannot move ahead without is acceptance. And there's a long chapter on that, but we cannot face it if, if unless we we understand what we're dealing with and, and and move on. I think the major point of the entire book which is so crucial, is that we, we tend, when we get an, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, we can tend to think of it as a Greek tragedy. We know the end, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And I think what my book does is say, that's not so. Alzheimer's affects different parts of the brain differently. And in some cases, there's, there's nothing. You can be the most loving, gentle, kind person, and they still end up violent and, and not knowing who you are. But there's a chance you do you do have a chance to give the kind of love and kindness and and respect and and uh, and and give give the person the dignity. And it was when Aidy saw that from me that he that he changed. We're not powerless. We can make a difference. And even if we don't affect the ultimate outcome, we we have we have a role to play. So the title of the book is Finding Joy, Alzheimer's. Book of Hope, and it's available on Amazon. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to put links to the book, links to your website on the Roger That webpage, so that people can reach back uh, once the episode airs. I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. 
my pleasure. I enjoyed speaking to you both so very, very much. And uh, again, as I started, I I applaud you for the wonderful work you're doing to help us. Well, thank you for what you did for 80. That was, it's amazing. So again, thank you so much for being on the show. Be well. Well, she certainly provided a number of tips for caregivers, ideas that um, aren't typical in, you know, when people are offering advice to caregivers. Uh, One of the things that I particularly like was keeping the mind busy throughout the day and limiting television time when at all possible. And it's funny because as we do this, we continuously learn things from our guests. And I remember that one of the things that my dad did was he spent a lot of times in the, in front of the TV watching the old TV programs. And for him, it, it seemed to have a calming effect for the most part. Well, that was part of your dad's routine even before he... And that's exactly true. Uh, that yeah. was his... Because he was so absolutely introverted all of his life that was part of his routine and disrupting that would have would have not would have been not good in his particular case correct and i also uh you know when she talked about drawing i remember there's a documentary saying uh, uh i think the title was something like i remember when i draw yes i remember better when i paint yes yeah that's it i remember better when i paint so that didn't surprise me when uh she mentioned about him him drawing And it goes along with the alive inside with the music and what I do with the music there. Absolutely. Music, art. Yes. And the other thing that uh, I felt good about that my list and her list are pretty much right in sync. And that was kind of fun because I know the first couple of times I took my dad to the doctors and I would come home, you would say, did you ask him about this? Did you talk to the doctor about that? And I, well, you don't even do that when you go in for yourself. So, well, (laughs) (laughs) So um, that was good, too. Well, it, it's been qu- quite a segment. And again, we're very thankful that we had Helene here. You can find out more about Helene and her book, Finding Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope, on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.